Hey everybody, it's good to see you. My name's Con. I am the, I'm the campus pastor over at uh, Liverpool Church, and I'm also the youth pastor across both campuses. And it's always super exciting to come back here to Padstow. I was at Padstow for, I believe, nine or so years before we uh, we got sent over there, and now we're doing life over there and ministry over there. So that's really, really cool and, and lots of fun. Today's message, um, if we can get it up on the screen, is Jesus is alive. Yeah, Jesus is alive. This is a message that's coming off the back of last week. Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. I believe I'm losing my paper because um, we could talk about the resurrection of Jesus every week, couldn't we? So I'm excited to go through this. Let's read through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through to 8. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, 3 through to 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to also me. Father God, thank you so much for today and this message. Father God, thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And this message is, is based around these messages that we just had last week, God, but we can learn about it every week because it is so exciting to know that our Lord and our God is, in fact, still alive today. Amen? Tap the person next to you and say, Jesus is alive, just to make sure that you're awake and you haven't fallen asleep. Amen. This, is, uh, this would have to be the most significant event in the history of the world, I believe, and in Christianity, that Jesus rose from the grave. Some of you probably don't think it's that exciting. You get to see people come back to life every week watching Bondi Rescue. Yeah, it's a TV program where they video surf lifesavers that um, down at Bondi Beach, and you get foreigners that come that don't understand the beaches and our shores, and that there's really, really strong currents there, and they get dragged out, and some, unfortunately, drown. They get brought back in. And isn't CPR, I think it's 30 compressions, 30 pumps, two breaths, 30 pumps, two breaths to try to get them to come back to life. If that doesn't happen, they put a defibrillator on them where it shocks their heart. Hey, hey, there they are. They've come back to life. They check, they kind of throw out water. Is that resurrection? No, that is resuscitation. That's not resurrection. Don't get the two confused. They will live for a little bit longer and then one day die, but that's not resurrection. Resurrection is what we learn around the Easter message, Good Friday, where we learned that Jesus Christ substituted himself in our place for our sins and died on the cross and there was a guy there that was a professional executor just to make sure that he was dead. That's what he'd done all day. He took a spear and he shoved it into the side of Jesus, piercing his heart stack where both blood and water flowed from him. He actually died. They took Jesus' body. They wrapped him in upwards of 100 pounds of spices and linen. Um, and then they put him in a tomb. They rolled a huge stone in front of it where he couldn't get out. Now, there wouldn't have been any CPR back then to resuscitate, resuscitate Jesus. There was no defibrillators to wake him back up again. There wasn't somebody there with a drip waiting for three days for him to come back out. Jesus actually died. But on the third day, he resurrected from the dead and Jesus will never die again. Yeah? Jesus rose from the grave and for 40 days, as we just read, he appeared to many people and then he ascended into the kingdom of heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus will never die again. That is resurrection. And that's why... Us as Christians do not go on a long pilgrimage to Jerusalem to visit a dead guy in a tomb. Amen? 
This is what makes Christianity different from every other major world religion. Muhammad, he's buried in a place called Mecca where they go and visit him at that place. Buddha, he's buried over in India where people go to pay their respect and honor to that person and they make a pilgrimage out to India to go and say, him, Christians, we don't go to a tomb. We come, a few billion people come to church on a Sunday praising the name of Lord Jesus because he's not dead. He did not stay in that grave. He did not um, stay in that place. He rose from the grave and he lives today in glory with the Father. And this is why the Apostle Paul says in his passage that that is of first importance, that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. But unfortunately, sometimes, and for some of us, that we don't make Jesus the first importance. It can be our car, it can be our hobby, it can be our, our spouse, our house, our children, our job, our finances, whatever it is. But Paul says, hey, Jesus Christ is to be number one. Unfortunately, this isn't for all of us. It's not. Some of us see Jesus or aren't excited as the resurrection of Jesus because he's no more to us than just receiving an email or a viable message that says you've won the lottery. Yeah, you know those, those messages that you get? You know the ones that come from a, from a place that you have not been, from a lottery that you have not entered, and in a currency that is not Australian? Anybody receive those emails? If Kylie and I had cashed in every single time we got a text message or an email of the amount of money we want, we would not be doing church here this Sunday. I, we would buy a boat big enough to fit us all on. Yeah, we would go sailing and we would do this message on the water. That would be pretty cool, right? Because that's how much money we probably would have won. But what, is, what do you think when the first thing when you see a message like that? It's just one big scam or a joke. Some people unfortunately think that Jesus is a scam, that his resurrection is a scam, that Christianity is a big scam, but that's not true. But I believe that for most of us, if you'd ask Australians today about Jesus, they'd probably tell you that he was a good moral teacher, that he was a good guy. And this morning, I want to start off first by breaking this idea and this approach that you cannot sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, I believe this is where most Australians are today. We're a Christian nation founded on Christian principles and Christian values. And I believe in Australia that people don't hold the view that Jesus didn't exist as much as they don't care that he existed and the significance of his existence doesn't even matter to them. If you've been a Christian long enough and you talk to people about Jesus and you start quoting Bible verses and that, they'll tell you, oh yeah, he was just a nice guy, he was a moral teacher, he probably believed in tolerance, he loved people, he served people, um, he, he understood what it was like to be poor, he was kind of down in the dirt with people, he built harmony, he showed us a way of life to love one another, to encourage one another. He was all over, hey, just a good guy. If this is your view this morning of Jesus, then you haven't really taken the time to look at what the Bible says about Jesus and also what Jesus actually says about himself. When you read scripture, we don't just see the disciples telling us that Jesus was in fact God, but Jesus made some outrageous, absolutely offensive truth claims of who he was. You see, Jesus wasn't murdered because of the things that he did, the miracles that he'd done, the signs and wonders that he performed, and the huge following that he had, but he was murdered because of the things that he said about himself. Now, you're either going to put him in the category of a crazy speaking lunatic, or you're going to worship him as God. Here are some of the things that Jesus said about himself. In John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. This is Jesus declaring that he and the Father are one. That commentators say that this idea of one is saying that Jesus and God the Father are the same substance. They're equal. They are one. That Jesus is, in fact, God. That's who he's declaring to be. 
We also see in John 14, verses 9, if you, have seen, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Some of you wake up in the morning, and I know that when I wake up and I look at the, uh, the mirror, I get a bit of a shock with my reflection. Don't know if that happens to you. But when I look in the mirror, I see a reflection of myself. Here Jesus is saying that when you see him, you see the Father. That if you want to know what God the Father is like in the kingdom, you just need to look towards Jesus because he mirrors, he reflects God the Father. It also says in Hebrews that he is the exact radiance, the exact representation of God the Father. This is another way that Jesus is saying, hey, I am God. Jesus also says in John chapter 6, verse 38, that I have come down from heaven. Now, probably some of you have said you've been to heaven. It was like Thailand where it was beautiful waters and white sand and palm trees and coconuts. To you, that might have seemed like heaven, right? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Who dwells in heaven? God does. Jesus is saying that he has come from that place, that earth is not his home. The kingdom of God is his home. If Jesus came from that place to earth, who dwells in heaven? God dwells in heaven. And Jesus is declaring that he has come down from that place and that he is, in fact, God. Lastly, Jesus answers this idea and challenges the idea that he's just a good and moral teacher. In Mark chapter 10, verses 18, it says, Why do you call me good? And Nathan preached on this a couple of weeks ago about the rich young ruler who had it all. He had lots of money. He believed he was blessed by God and he was going to be saved. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And instead of Jesus answering that, he first changes his perspective. He redirects his idea of what he's actually saying and asking by saying, Why do you call me good? For only God alone is good. They understood back then in that culture that if you called somebody good, only God was good. But this guy was kind of a little proud. He was a little, you know, he had money. And he's kind of saying, hey, good teacher. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You can't just call me good teacher by understanding that I'm just good. You need to understand that I myself am God. The thing is that you need to, what you need to understand about this is that this was absolutely an outrageous statement to say to first century, first century Jewish people. Because they understood that if you were calling yourself God, this was blasphemy, and it was punishable by death alone. Now, in comparison, to give you an idea of what this would have looked like, if I went to Afghanistan, right in the cellar of the t- Taliban, and went into ISIS's camps and said, hey, everybody, I'm a Christian, just letting you know you all need to be saved by Jesus, what would happen to me? Now, with all the persecution that's happening around Christianity and ISIS, they would capture me, and they would take, the, they would take my life. That was the same thing. That's probably the same perspective, the same as Jesus saying to them back then that I was God. They were outraged by this. It was blasphemy. And here's what John 5.18 says. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Not be, uh, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Here's the big idea. How can you call Jesus a nice guy, a good moral teacher, if he was just a man and declaring these things? Wouldn't he be a liar? Wouldn't he be telling false truths about himself? We cannot sit on the fence when it comes to Jesus because he made these outrageous truth claims and either he was telling the truth or he was a huge liar. We cannot say that he was just a good guy. Here's what a man named C.S. Lewis has to say about this particular topic. And if you don't know C.S. Lewis, he was a man that lived in the 18th and 19th century. Um, He was around when there was a lot of scientific evidence based stuff going on, a lot of rationalizing and, and reasoning that was happening. He was an apologist. He was somebody that, um, that, that preached and teach and wrote heaps of books. He also wrote the children's books called The Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody seen that movie before? 
Yeah, it's a Christian-based movie. The Christian-based books around Jesus. Watch the movie. It's pretty cool. This is what he says about this topic. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Hear that again. A man who was just merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great teacher. And we just saw all the things that Jesus said about himself, right? He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg. Being a little bit funny there. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. And my hope this morning, if you don't believe Jesus is in fact God, that you would transition from not believing that he was God to worshipping Jesus this morning. He goes on to say that you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I hope you're being challenged this morning realizing that Jesus was either somebody that needed four wars, lots of padding and heaps of medication, or he was... In fact, God himself. And this is where we find ourselves today. And this is what I'm talking about, that Jesus is alive. Resurrection Sunday is the absolute pinnacle of Christianity. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, that if Christ did not rise from death, that he, rather, that our faith is futile, that it is a waste of time and we are still in our sins. That everything that we are doing here on a Sunday, coming to worship God, coming to praise him, if Jesus wasn't in fact God, if he did not rise from the dead, then we're simply praising and singing to a dead guy. But that's not the case. Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And this is what Tim Keller has to say about this particular topic as well. The Tim Keller is a man that is alive today. He pioneers a church of around about 3,000 people in downtown Manhattan in New York, uh, a highly... Um, uh, very intelligent culture, of course, down there. He's wrote heaps of books. Um, he's a great Bible preacher and teacher. He says this, The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And hear this now. If Jesus rose from the dead, you would have to take his teaching seriously. If Jesus rose from the dead, you would have to take his teaching seriously. And I believe it's a matter of life or death and it has eternal consequences. This is why we get so excited as Christians. This is why we can look like lunatics to the people outside that we're singing, we're dancing, we're praising, we're clapping our hands as we come in because our king came back to life. And we're so excited about that. And that's what we believe here at LifeGate Church, that Jesus is our king, Jesus is our God, Jesus is our savior, and we believe he's the answer to humanity's problems. Yeah, that's what we believe because he's alive. But Con, this is all cool. You've just told me what Jesus said about himself. You've just shown me what scripture says. And I believe this is the question that we have to answer that people will ask of us. Con, is the Bible a reliable source that we can trust to give us an accurate account about the resurrection? I've just shared all these things from scripture. But these are the kind of questions that come up with people that probably don't believe that what we're saying is true. Is the Bible a reliable source that we can trust to give us an accurate account about the resurrection. If you've been a Christian long enough and you've tried to share your faith about him and start quoting Bible verses, 
This is the general gist that people actually push back on Christians or push back on us about why they don't believe. They'll say something like this. Yeah, that's good. The Bible kind of said these things, but isn't it just a bunch of stories? Isn't it just a bunch of myths or made-up stuff? Isn't it legend? Isn't Jesus like legend? Isn't he a myth? Isn't it just something that was made up? And 70 to 80 years later, when Jesus died, the, the politicians or the church leaders made up these stories to strengthen their position, to build their movement, and to consolidate their power by making up the stories about Jesus' divinity. And what they actually did, they suppressed that he was actually God, and they suppressed, rather, they suppressed that he was actually man. So people, they're saying, what they're saying is that, hey, Christians just made up this story, so that church leaders could consolidate their power um, and build their movement and that the Bible is just a bunch of stories. Well, what do we have to say to that objection? Well, we've got to say that it's not true, that that's not what the Bible says or what actually happened. And I want to answer this question in two ways. I want to answer it historically, that the Bible is reliable historically, and I want to say that the Bible is reliable personally. First, Historically, there's three ways that I want to show you that the Bible is reliable and a trustworthy source of the resurrection historically. The first way is that it's too counterproductive to be just a bunch of stories, meaning that what we have in the Bible, what it actually says would have done the opposite to consolidating the church power. When we read it, when we actually read it, and we're going to have a look at that in a moment. So historically, it's too counterproductive to be made up. It's written too early to be a myth or a legend, and it's written in too much detail to be a myth and legend. Let's go. You guys ready for this? You guys all right? Is this okay? Yeah? Here we go. It's too counterproductive. If you were to make up a story about Jesus actually coming back to life and you were to put the names of people in the Bible that saw it happen, wouldn't you use people that had the most influence in that community? Wouldn't you use people that had the most credibility? Wouldn't you use people that could sway others in the direction that you want? Then why does the Bible tell us that the first people to witness Jesus' tomb was empty and to witness Jesus actually rose from the dead was women. See, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you don't know, the Gospels give us the account of Jesus' life and what he did, that he died and that he rose again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels tell us that the first eyewitnesses at the scene of the tomb were women and Mary Magdalene was the first person to actually experience, witness, touch, see Jesus come back to life. Now, you might be thinking, what's the problem with that? What's wrong with seeing, what's wrong with a woman actually seeing Jesus come back to life? Well, you've got to understand this. In that culture, women's testimony had no weight. Women's testimony had no credibility. Because of of their low social status, it would not have held up in court, and women's testimony was not respected in that culture. Secondly, if you were to make up a story about Jesus being God, wouldn't you... Wouldn't you write it down as him coming in on a horse, waving his sword around, and bringing all his army along, and knocking over the Roman government who suppressed the Jewish people? Because that is, that is what the Jews were waiting for. You see, they experienced kings like King David, King Solomon, King Saul. They took their army out. They went to battle. They defeated the enemy. They went to war. They won, and they redeemed God's people, and they would live in peace and harmony. Well, the Jews weren't living in peace and harmony at that time because the Roman government was, was the higher power at that time, suppressing them, and they were waiting for a king. Wouldn't you write down that Jesus was this mighty guy that came in, and he fought the battle, and he won, and he crushed the Roman government? Then why do we see in Scripture that just before Jesus is to be captured, that he's praying to the Father, and that he was under so much stress, that he was under so much anxiety that his sweat turned to blood, which medical 
medical stuff tells us that that is a really rare condition that can actually happen. Why does the Bible tell us then that when Jesus was praying, he's saying, Father, if there is another way, if this cup may pass from me, why does the Bible tell us then that when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Tim Keller says that this is, this is a passage that is both confusing and, and, and offensive in our culture today, but it would have been even more offensive and confusing in that culture today. This makes Jesus look weak. It makes him look soft. It doesn't make him look like the king that they were waiting to come. So if you wanted to strengthen your movement and consolidate your power, why would you portray Jesus in this way? What is the possible reason for writing down these things? The big idea is that you would never use women as the first eyewitness accounts to actually to, to see Jesus rise. You would never portray Jesus in this way because it would have been too counterproductive at that time to create movement of Christianity. That's my first point. We know that the Bible is reliable because it's too counterproductive. The second point is this. It was written too early to be a legend or myth. What do I mean by this? In order for the Bible to be made up stories where people could not disprove what the church leaders were saying about Jesus, it's as if they wrote the Bible 780 years after Jesus had died. Then all the people that actually saw Jesus could testify against what was written. Let me illustrate this for you. I hope you can all see. Let's just say this is BC, yeah? Before everything after here is before Christ. This is the birth of Jesus. And this over here is AD. And everything along here is AD. Mind you, if you don't believe that Jesus existed, our historical calendar literally revolves around the birth of Jesus, BC, before Christ, AD, Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. And so Jesus lived for 30 years before he did anything. So for 30 years, he didn't do anything. He was baptized, and then he goes into ministry. And then for three years in this space, for three years before he died, that's when he rose people from the dead. That's when he healed people. That's when he done all these miracles. Yeah, that's when he, he made the blind to see, the lame to walk. He done all this amazing stuff, lots of followers. He died roughly around the age of 33. If you were to make up stories about Jesus and what he did and what he said, you would have had to write them 70 to 80 years after Jesus' death, which puts you around about 100 to 110 AD. Why would they have to write stuff in that period? Because if they wrote the Bible in that time frame, all the people that lived in this time would have been dead. And so whatever they would have written in this time, the people here would have been able to see that what they wrote was not true. Here's what, and here's the problem. What we understand about today is that the, one of the letters that was written from 1 Corinthians um, rather, first, yeah, first Corinthians from the Apostle Paul was written 15 to 20 years after Jesus rose from death. So that puts it in the category of around about uh, 48 to roughly 55 AD. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says this, looking up in the slide. It reads, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, to all the apostles, last of all, as to the one untimely born. There is no way that if this was made up that this would have gotten any 
kind of ground and would have had any kind of movement that was going on because it was written so early. It wasn't written a hundred years after Jesus has died. It was written 15 to 20 years after Jesus had actually died. And so Paul is saying, hey, the people that experienced Jesus, the people that saw Jesus come back to life, the people that saw Jesus do all these miracles, they're still around. You can go and talk to James. You can talk to any of the apostles. You can talk to the almost 500 people that are still around. They're still alive. And this is what Luke um, chapter 1 verses 1 through to 3 says, which was actually written about 30 to 40 years after Jesus rose from the dead. It says, In so much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. The Bible is recorded from people actually experiencing and seeing the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it did. The whole book of Luke is written off eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time. This is what Luke, this is what Luke did. He went over and said, hey, what did you see? I saw Jesus came back from the dead. Hey, what did you see? I saw him raise people from the dead. Hey, what did you see? I saw the lame walk. Hey, what did you see? This person was blind. He healed their sight. Hey, what did you hear him say? He said this. And, and, and Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. He was a learned man. And he documented um, what he heard other people saying about what they actually saw. Here's the big idea. If Jesus never walked the earth, if Jesus never healed anyone, if Jesus never claimed to be God, if Jesus never died and he never rose from the dead, you need to understand that these were public documents that were getting around. They weren't hidden. They were public and they were being shared and they were being spoken and they were encouraging the Christian believers of that time. If this stuff never happened, then Christianity would never have gotten off the ground because the people would have still been alive and they could have testified and said, that's a bunch of rubbish. How do we explain that? Because it actually happened. Because the Bible was written too early to be legend. The Bible was written too early to be a bunch of stories. You see, if they waited 100 or 110 years, they didn't have Snapchat back then. They weren't getting selfies with Jesus healing people. They weren't taking photos and saying, check this out. You could make up whatever you wanted in that time period. But we understand that Scripture was written as early as 15 to 20 years after Jesus died. And Paul tells us, that there was 500 people that witnessed him at one time when he rose, and he said, many of them are still alive. Just go and ask them. Just go and ask them, and they will tell you. Here's my third point. The Bible was written too, in too much detail to be myth or legend. Anybody seen the Twilight movies? Probably some of you probably want to burn this book. Sorry to bring it in the church. But it's a well-known... Um, it's a well-known movie and series, a bunch of vampires and, and, and werewolves and all kind of stuff like that. When you read these books, you'll see that it has lots and lots of detail. Things that happened, people's names, places they went, you know, love stories, um, all sorts of crazy stuff that you see in these books. And what we do is when we read books like this, we, we look at that and we say, hey, through our 2017 perspective, if that can be written like that, if stories can be made up as clear as that and is in much detail as that, then what's to say that Scripture wasn't made up as well? What's to say that Scripture was made up as well? Here's the problem. These kind of books are written in a genre called the novel. They're actually called novelistic, realistic narrative. 
And these types of style of writing was not invented or developed until the 18th century. You need to understand that they did not write like this in first century culture. People think that the Bible is just a bunch of myths and legends. I guarantee you, if you go and read any Greek mythology, if you go and read any um, Roman legend, you would not see the detail that Scripture shows for us today. The reason why that we look at Scripture and say, hey, that's a bunch of made-up stories because we're coming at it from our 2017 perspective when only these books were designed and created in the 18th century. They couldn't have written stuff like this back then. They didn't write things like that back then. This is what Google says about realistic fiction. It is a genre consisting of stories that could have actually occurred to people or animals in a believing setting. These stories resemble real life and fictional characters within the stories and they react similar to real people. They've got heaps of detail in them, but they never wrote like that back then. Have a look at the detail that is written here in, in 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our own hands concerning the word. This is John saying, hey, it's not just me. We, we've seen Jesus, we've experienced Jesus, we've touched Jesus. You will never see this kind of detail written in mythology or in Greek legends. Here's what C.S. Lewis has to say about this topic. I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths my whole life. So C.S. Lewis was a real pro when it came to understanding this stuff. He says, I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. And he's talking, about, he's talking about the gospel. There are only two possible views. Either this is reportage. You've got to see this. Either this is historical reportage, written documents about what actually happens. Or, or else some unknown ancient writer without any known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern realistic realistic narrative. He, here's what he's saying. There's two possible views that you can have of Scripture and how it was written. The first one is that it's actually reportage of what happened. Hey, did you see this? Yes. Did you see this? Yes. As we saw in um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, people witnessed Jesus rise from dead. Luke said it was eyewitnesses that I went and spoke to, and that's what I documented. It was reportage. Or he's saying some unknown ancient writer, without anybody writing like that before him, without anybody writing like that before him, somehow invented a novelistic, realistic narrative that was not invented 1,700 years later. Is that possible? That somebody just somehow came up with the idea of writing scripture that we don't have that kind of genre up until the 18th century? No. It has to be reportage. It has to be what was documented about what actually happens. So the Bible's accounts of Jesus' resurrection historically is trustworthy because it is too counterproductive to be a bunch of stories and myths. It's written in way too much detail, and it was written way too early to just be a bunch of legends and myths. Secondly, we can trust the Bible's reliability personally. And I want to make this one point. Everything the Bible says that will happen in your life actually happens. Everything that happens in the Bible says that will happen in your life actually happens. The popular saying goes like this, or rather non-Christians believe that if I give my life to Jesus, then I'm going to have to start doing things that I don't want to do. I'm going to have to start going to church, how boring. I'm going to have to start reading my Bible. I don't understand it. 
I'm going to have to pray, I think. I'm going to have to go and hang out with those people that clap and sing songs. This is going to be terrible. Oh, this is, this is not good. And that they're going to have to stop doing the things that they actually want to do. But that's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is actually about getting to do the things that you want to do and being able to stop doing the things that you don't want to do. And this happens in three ways, and I'll be really quick with this and quite brief. The first one is that you get a new heart, you get a new nature, and you receive the Holy Spirit. First of all, a new heart. The Bible talks about the heart not as the actual um, physical organ, but it talks about the seed, the sum, the essence of who you are. It's talking about the thoughts, it's talking about your emotions, it's talking about your feelings. And the Bible says that when you receive Jesus, he removes the heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh. Have you ever met somebody that's hard-hearted? That no matter what you say to them, no matter what you try and tell them, they're just like, no, I've got to have it this way, it's got to be done like this. That everything you say just literally bounces off. There's somebody that's kind of hard-hearted. And that's how people can be to Christianity and God's word. But the Bible says that when you receive Jesus, that God gives you a heart of flesh, one that is moldable, one that God shapes and changes and gives you new desires. God gives you new desires. And so when you become a Christian, you don't just... You don't just, um, you know, stop doing the things that, that, that you want to do. You actually start doing the things that you actually want to do because God gives you a heart of flesh. It's a little like the imagery of a, of a clay potter with the clay, that a, a man that actually shapes the clay, that God is the clay potter and the clay is our heart and God intervenes and he shapes it for us. We first will receive a new heart. The second thing is, is that we get a new nature. The Bible speaks about putting off of the old self and putting on of the new nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 17 says, For those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. This means that God doesn't just make you better, he makes you new. See, God doesn't save you so that you can go and do all these things. Now, okay, yeah, you've been saved. Now, go ahead, go and do all this stuff. You've got to make yourself better. No, God removes the old nature, all the stuff that you've done in your past, in your present, and what you're going to do in the future is going to be forgiven. It's going to be cleansed. God gives you a new nature, and he shapes you from your new heart in your new nature, and you get to be a Christian renewed. He doesn't just make you better, but God makes you new by giving you a new nature. And lastly, he empowers you through the Holy Spirit, that when you become a Christian, God's presence and power dwells in you. Have you ever heard the saying that my body's a temple? And anybody try to challenge people on their body and say, yeah, my body's a, my body's a temple. You know, they're, they're kind of saying that they look all sexy and stuff. But that actually comes from Scripture, that God's presence dwelt in the holies of holies that were built by King Solomon. It was a huge temple. God's presence dwelt in that place. It was destroyed in 70 AD. But before that, Jesus says, when he resurrected, I must go to the Father so that I may send a helper. I may go to the Father so that I may send a helper. And the helper is the Holy Spirit. So Jesus doesn't save you to leave you where you're at, but he sends the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit into your life. He gives you a new heart, a new nature, and he shapes you by the power of his Holy Spirit. He doesn't leave you to do it by yourself, but he empowers you to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the same power that encouraged Jesus, or rather empowered Jesus to raise people from the dead. It was the same pit, it's the same Holy Spirit that made that done all the wonders, that done the signs, that done the miracles. It was the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That is the power that lives in you so that you can see broken addictions in your life. Amen? So that you can see strongholds broken in your life. So that you can heal people by praying over them. So you can help you get rid of fear and anxiety and depression and that God can actually help you to forgive and that God can actually help you to get rid of your bitterness. 
This is the Holy Spirit. This is the stuff that He does in you. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us that the fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I believe. I think I said them all. Yes. Hands up if you want more peace. I could do with more peace all the time. You go to the Holy Spirit. He's the one that gives it to you. If you need more love, you go and see the Spirit. How many of you need more patience on the horn, just constantly in traffic? Get out of my way. I'm going to, I'm going to like the Holy Spirit. If you want patience, you go to Him. If you want gentleness, you go to the Holy Spirit. If you need self-control, you go to the Holy Spirit. He's the one that empowers you to be transformed. He's the one that actually equips, changes, and shapes you into the person of Jesus. And that's what the Bible says. That is what actually happens. Now, the best way for me to explain this is that it happens personally. And it's happened to me. And I reckon I can call up any person here that is a believer and has received Jesus this morning as their Lord, God, Savior, and Christ and has the Holy Spirit. They could tell you the same thing. Growing up, I grew up with my grandparents and I got pulled by the ears every Sunday to go to church, going to the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, it was, you know, people that were all looked like to me, they were above 90 years old, and not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, it was really hard to be in a church that... Everybody wore black. I didn't understand the language. I've got nothing against the Orthodox Church. They're awesome. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. But they just do things in a way that's, for me at the time, being like a 7, 8, 9, 12, 15-year-old was very boring. I did not want to be there. I would stand up for around about three hours. I felt like my back was going to snap. I didn't understand anything. I went to all the major events. Uh, Easter is absolutely huge in the Greek Orthodox Church. They got Palm Sunday, of course. Friday, they walk around the church with the candles. Saturday, they go to church at 11.30 at night, with again with candles, and they wait to 12 o'clock, and they sing, Christ has risen, literally. Like, it's, it, they block off roads. It's really awesome. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing. I'd done all this kind of stuff, but next day, Monday comes, I was no different. I didn't care about Jesus. I didn't want to read my Bible. I didn't want to pray to God. I didn't want to change my life. If you had asked me, I would have said, yeah, I'm a Christian. I go to Orthodox Church. Like, man, what's, what's the big deal? That's the way that it is, right? If you'd asked me if I was going to heaven, absolutely, man. I, I, I did my cross and I lit a candle. I went and kissed a few icons. I went to church on Sunday. Everything was fine, right? Isn't that what you do? But my life was no different on Monday, regardless of what happened on Sunday. And then one moment, everything changed. It was like, it was like a light bulb switch moment. Like if you saw it in reality, it just would have been this thing that just would have lit up on my head. Um, that's what it would have looked like. Somebody said something very simple to me. It was trusting God. He's got you covered. And it went from my head to my heart. I cannot explain it. Everything had changed to me. I realized that sex before marriage was, was a sin and that I should be waiting before, uh, uh, before, until I get married before I, 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 I step into that. I realized that getting drunk with my friends on a weekend was wrong and that I should stop doing that. I realized that as Alex so wonderfully said today that my money was and my finances weren't about me, that I needed to start giving, that I needed to start blessing other people with my finances. And I'll never forget it uh, with some of these things that happened. I remember when I wanted to start reading my Bible, I went to hospital and as I was waiting in the, um, to be called up, I took my Bible with me. I hated reading. I'd never read my Bible. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm like, okay, where's my Bible? I'm going to go to hospital. I want to read that. And as I read it, I just, I just saw things stand out to me. I just like, this is wrong. I've got to change this. Yeah, my desires started to change. My heart started to change. Everything that Scripture actually said started to come true in my life. And as I started to come church on a Sunday night, my work was getting in the way. 
And I realized that, you know, what's more important than actually going to work and making money on that Sunday night was coming to church, was coming to be with Christian believers, was coming to pray to God, was coming to serve God, was coming to worship God. And I went straight up to my boss and I said to him, hey, I'm sorry, I can't work Sunday nights anymore. I've got to go to church. I didn't care whether he took me off for the whole week. I didn't care if he took me off for the whole day. I told him what, I, what was really important to me. I would have never done that before. I hated going to church. Where did all these new desires start coming from? I got a new heart. I got a new nature. And I received the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit to transform me. You can trust the Bible personally because everything that it says that will happen will, in fact, happen. And on a personal level, God has taught me some amazing things. He's taught me how to stand up for myself. He's taught me to have courage in the midst of fear. For those of you that don't know me, and I've told this story quite a long time, I could not read to a class without shaking or leaving the class before actually it'll come to me. I would start counting the actual heads in the classroom and thinking, okay, where, where is it up to? When is it going to get to me? And I'd try to read. Before that, like, I'd be sweating. My shirts would be covered in like all that yellow stuff because I'd be so anxious when I'd be in class. But God has taught me to have courage in the midst of fear. He encourages me every day. He strengthens my soul. He has shown me that it's okay to fail. He has shown me that it's okay not to have everything together. And probably the most important thing here is allowed me to trust in God and hand over my life. And I can't tell you how freeing that is. Trying to hold the universe in your hands and control everything around you and that your life's all about the decisions that you only make is just, it's bondage. And releasing your life into the hands of God and trusting in Him that He guides you, that He will sustain you, that He will love you, that He will care for you, the desires that He gives in your heart and the Holy Spirit that He puts in you is absolutely amazing. And I'm going to call the worship band up and this is where I finish. Have we got time for a song? We're going to sing one more song. Can I ask everybody to stand with me? So what does all this information do? Hopefully it's showing that Jesus Christ is, in fact, God. The Bible tells us so. Jesus said it himself. The disciples say it. We believe it. And we can trust the Bible account that it is reliable and trustworthy historically and personally. And here's what the Bible says in Romans 10.9. This is the response that you have to have. And we read it earlier. It doesn't matter whether you, you like what Jesus said or not. It doesn't, it doesn't matter about that. What matters is, is he actually rose from the grave and that has to cause something to change in your world. And here it is, Romans 10.9. says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's what we've been talking about, that he rose from dead, that he is God, and that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Amen. Resurrection Sunday last week. We could talk about this every single week. You will be saved. You will be saved. Not maybe, not if, not but, but you will be saved. And my heart this morning is that if this is making sense, if something's pulling on your heartstring that is saying, you know what, I thought Jesus was just a good guy. You know what, I thought he was a moral teacher. Maybe I didn't even believe in him before, but now after this, yeah, Jesus is resurrected king. If you want to give your life to Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm not going to get you to put your hand up or come at the front or do anything like that. I'm going to pray and all I'm going to ask while I'm praying, just say to yourself, you know what, Jesus, I believe you're God. Because this is what it says. Believe that Jesus is God. And just confess with your mouth that he is God and believe that he was raised from the dead. Ask God into your life. Ask God into your heart. So I'm going to pray. You're going to invite God into your heart. And then we're going to sing and worship him. So please pray now if that is you. Father God, I thank you for everybody that is here today. 
God, I thank you that you are our resurrected King Jesus, that you didn't stay up in heaven and just watch us try to figure it out for ourselves, but God, that you, you step into human history and you became like one of us and you can identify with us, Lord God, and you experienced everything that we went through. And it's so amazing that we have a God that, that, that understands and that can identify with us. But Jesus, you went to the cross and died in our place for our sins that we may be reconciled to the Father, that we may have a new heart, that we may receive a new nature, and we may have the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our heart to do life with you. And that life doesn't just start that when we die and go to be in heaven, but that it starts today that we get to meet you as the resurrected Savior. And God, I pray for anyone this morning that has that has opened their hearts to you, that they would tell a friend, that they would receive prayer, and that they would live their life praise and worshiping you. In your name we pray. Amen.